Welcome to today's edition of the College Experts Talk podcast, the resource for parents and students navigating the college planning process. Felicia Gopal, founder of collegefundingresource.com and creator of the College Decision Navigator System, talks with world-class college planning experts who openly and honestly share the triumphs and challenges families face every day in helping their children get into and pay for the colleges of their choice. We want you to feel like you're sitting down with our experts and getting their best ideas without paying their considerable consulting fees. So sit back and relax as Felicia interviews others about the issues and concerns of selecting colleges, competing for a coveted place in a class, and ultimately paying for the colleges that admit your kids. Hi, this is Felicia Gopal of College Funding Resource, and today I have with me one of my favorite interviewees, Chuck Moore, and today what we're going to talk about is what do parents do who've gotten the financial aid awards, have looked at all of their finances, and now have college approaching, and there's just a gap. And we're going to have Chuck come in and talk to us about what should parents do in that circumstance, because you come across that all the time, don't you, Chuck, in your practice? Oh, yes. This is common just about with almost 90 to 95% of the people that are facing college cost issues, so this is not out of the ordinary. So one of the biggest things that I see all the time is people talking about they got some financial aid, but they're surprised that there's still a gap between the financial aid that they got and the cost of their college. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you find a lot? Yeah, and and one of the big reasons is that this is what is actually being taught to individual parents when they're in high school. They go to the college night at their high school or within their area community. And what is being taught to the individuals is how to complete the free application for federal student aid. Now, what the parents are being told here is that everyone, regardless of your income, will be able to receive some form of financial assistance. Well, if you look and talk to a lot of the individual parents out there, they look at financial aid as not loans or work study or things like that. They have it set back in their mind that there's all these billions of dollars of free money out there in the forms of scholarships and grants. They have no idea of how the individual student can qualify for this so-called free money. What needs to be instilled in a lot of the parents, as well as the students, is to understand what is available through the federal government as well as the state. And that is the reason why the FAFSA form is required. It is the only form, by the way, out there when you're applying for some type of money resource that really does not indicate or tell you what you're going to get. Everything is basically a secret. Hold on, but couldn't they get that information with the FAFSA forecaster? That would uh, give them kind of an estimate of how much money they would be able to get from the federal government? That is exactly what parents should do before they start looking at any college or university is to figure out what their expected family contribution is going to be. Now, here's where the problem is, is that when completing the FAFSA form. What I call the FAFSA form, and I've reworded it, I call it a federal loan application. <laughs> uh, and basically that's what it is because the only real free money, the most popular free money out there through the federal government as we speak today is the Pell Grant and the SEOG Grant. 
Well, what a lot of individuals do not understand, you have to make under $30,000 worth of total income during the year to even qualify for those free monies. So that is for the most neediest people. If you look down and see what else is available, you're going to find out that what remains is nothing but in the forms of loans or work study. Now, I do understand that a lot of states do also have scholarships or grants for individual students, but once again, this is based off of need, and there's where the importance of knowing what your expected family contribution is going to be. So there's lots of different resources for finding out what your expected family contribution is, and one of the resources that I say is go on the web, get an online EFC calculator and do kind of an estimate of your expected family contribution because it's not going for most people since their income doesn't change from year to year significantly. It's going to be a good approximation of their expected family contribution. So that would be one of the steps that you're talking about as well as looking at and completing the FAFSA forecaster which tells you what types of money you might get from the federal government. So you've got those two steps in place when the students, when parents are looking at going to college, but and they've got some time on their hands, but we're talking about parents who are really in crunch time. Their students have already been accepted to colleges. They're already planning on their students attending very shortly, and now there's still a gap. What sorts of resources do they do? Do you look at their cash flow? I mean, what are parents missing in this whole calculation in terms of what are they going to do if they don't want to necessarily go out and take out lots of student loans? Well, here's one. One of the things that I always tell individuals in the clinics that I put on is too many of the people spend too much time thinking about their financial problems, and in this case, it's paying for the cost of a college education. And they don't spend enough time on how to solve the financial problem. And I have seen with the majority of the individuals out there, whether or not they're rich, poor, middle income, or whatever, what is preventing them from paying for the cost of a college education is their financial habit. And I relate this back. A lot of people have basically heard of what is called the Newton's first law of motion. The law basically states that an object in motion tends to stay in motion in the same direction unless acted upon by an external force that will change the direction. In other words, if you're in the habit, families are in the habit of spending their monies on certain items, whether or not it will be a cell phone for the kids, you know, $125 a month of cable bills. They're spending their money on things that are wants, not on things that are need. So families need to take a real in-depth look of how they're spending their money. Now, we've got to realize there are only certain ways to pay for the cost of a college education. The best way to pay it is for the family to have enough time to save the money to pay for college. Well, according to the College Board, very few people have saved, and the ones that have saved, they've only saved $5,000, which today will not even cover 100% of the larger state-supported colleges the first year's tuition. Then you have another phase down here to where the individual student is academically proficient, either on a knowledge standpoint or a merit standpoint, which in merit standpoint, I'm talking about a special talent or skills like in music or art or even athletics. So there's the second way. So, you know, when I talk to parents, that's one of the things that they're really counting on. 
You know, oh, my yeah. kid is bright and talented, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking that they're going to get lots and lots of scholarships. Mm-hmm. And what I have found that scholarships really aren't as big a piece of the pie as a lot of people think it is. You know, I often tell people that they only pay for about 2% of the cost that you're going to need to cover for college. So you've got another 98% that you're going to need to cover for most students. And then there's lots of people who have kids that are very talented for athletics, but, you know, full scholarships for athletics, and I know you can speak to this a little better than I can, there's a lot of students who don't get full scholarships for athletics. You know, if the plan is to not necessarily change their spending and get lots and lots of scholarships, I can imagine that that leaves probably a lot of parents a little short in terms of college. You're exactly right, and by the way, only 10% of the student-athletes that play at the intercollegiate athletic level get full scholarships. Only 10%? Okay. 10%. The other portion of the athletes, they only get a partial. And normally your full scholarships are given out in what is called the revenue sports, which typically is known as football and basketball. But what I instill into a lot of people is that since they can't get so-called enough money to pay for the college education or they haven't saved enough, the third option down here is take it out of ordinary income. Well, now all of a sudden the parents look at their income, they see what they're spending their money on, and they say that is not an option. So the only option out there for the majority of the people that they think is their only option is to borrow their way through. And there's where the dilemma now is facing hundreds upon hundreds and even thousands of individual families that have students going to college today. And they don't realize that the borrowing aspect is just increasing the cost of a college education. The individual clinics that I put on, I can show any income level family, regardless of whether or not they're low income, middle income, or high income, how to pay anywhere between 65 to 75% of the cost of a college education without spending any more money than they're spending right now. Well, Chuck, that's a bold statement. You're going to have to prove that one. Okay, very, very easily, is that you have to sit down and have to understand what are you spending your money on to begin with. So that's your cash flow again. That is your cash flow. If you go in and you fill out a cash flow sheet and you're not honest with yourself, because if you're not honest with yourself, you're lying to yourself. So you sure. have to be honest of what you're spending your money on. Once you find out what you're spending your money on, now all of a sudden you can start seeing what is a need and what is a want. For example, a lot of individuals that are heading off to college, they see a $17,000 you know, total cost of attending at a public university, and I, we won't even get into the private, but let's say it's a $17,000 public college education. If they take in consideration the benefits that are available and what they have to work with, for example, while that student is living at home, what are you paying for as a family while they're living at home? Well, I'll relate this back to what the IRS says it will take for you to basically support that child while they're living at home, including food, clothing, shelter, educational needs, activity fees, and such. If you're the middle-income family making, let's say, between eighty-five dollars to $130,000 a year, if you truly look at it and what you're spending while that child is in at home, 
you're spending approximately $7,000, which is on a conservative standpoint. Now, that's feeding him, you know, letting them use the gas in the car, paying them allowance, paying their school lunches, paying their activity fees. The list can go on and on and on. Well, when that student leaves the household, these expenses are no longer going to be incurred within the household. So therefore, since you're already spending the money while the kids are at home, those monies now can be transferred to cover college educational expenses. So if we're looking at a $17,000 sticker price here, $7,000 of that sticker price, you're already paying. So now we're down to ten. So I don't think most people think about it that way. I know that when I sit down and talk to people in this way, it's a big surprise. It's just like, well, I'm not spending $7,000 on my kid, but if they're a typical boy, you're probably spending maybe $500 on the family for groceries, and the son takes up maybe 150 to $200 of that $500 budget. Okay, you take the 200 you get yes. that times nine months, Yes. That's $1,800 a year that your grocery bill is going to be reduced. Okay. And anyone that has a teenager, for some reason, their shower or their bathtub becomes (laughs) their second place of residence. That's true. So, therefore, your water costs are going to go down. Your heating costs are going to go down. Uh, If you look at the average individual student that's going to high school today, Normally, for their snacks and their lunches and things like that, it's going to cost anywhere between 4 to $5 a day. So if they go to school and they spend $5 a day times five days a week, that's 25 bucks times four weeks out of the month, that, that's $100 a month yeah. times nine months out of the year, that's $900 that no longer is going to be spent because the kid's going to college. Okay. Then you look at their activity fees that they're involved into. Once they get to their junior and senior year, these kids are involved into everything. Well, when they go to college, they're no longer going to be associating themselves with these activity fees, especially if they're in some type of club or whatever. So let's tack on, you know, another five or $600 there. So you see how these things add up. Yes. And they're, they're nickel and dime type items. But then again, once you start adding up all these nickel and dimes and go by the IRS guidelines of a family of four in the middle income tax bracket, the IRS basically states to cover the needs, that's housing, food, clothing, and educational needs and activity fees and such, the IRS says a normal family will spend approximately $7,000 a year. So those aren't my figures. So if you took that away from the $17,000 sticker price, we're down to $10,000. Okay, I can get that. Now, if the parent's income is within certain limits, they're going to qualify for either the HOPE or the lifetime tax credit or the educational tax deduction. So tack on another $1,800 on the HOPE tax credit if they're going to a public university. Now, all of a sudden, we're down to, what, $7,200. Okay. So just, just off of that scenario, we're looking at an out-of-pocket expense of seventy two. We divide that by 17000 We've now reduced just what you have available of almost 60% of the cost of the education. Okay. So then you start looking at other items that the individual student is consuming. If the student is going to come back in and qualify, let's say, for a $3,500 Stafford loan, then we can reduce that here, that $7,200 by $3,500. Now we have 
a dollar amount here that we're going to have to come up with extra, which is $3,700. If I were to take the 3700 and divide it by the 17000 that right there in itself is 78% of the cost of going to college without them spending any more money than they're spending now other than a small Stafford loan. Okay. Well, that makes it seem like it's it's affordable. There are other ways that people can come up with money? Mm-hmm. For example, out of that remaining uh, $3,400, $3,500, the individual student can basically work during the summer months, and let's assume they, they make $2,400 during the summer month. Have the individual student take half of that income to absorb that cost. Look at the individual family's income tax refund. According to the IRS, last year the average federal income tax refund was $2,100. Okay. Now, what does individuals do with that federal income tax return? Well, I think most people spend it. They, They spend it. They blow it. They look at it as a savings account. So they may take it and pay off a few Christmas debts or whatever, but on the norm, they're just going to go ahead and blow it on things that are not a need but want. So therefore, there's $2,100 there, not counting their state income tax refund. Let me let me just stop you. Okay. So what we're talking about is $7,000 from their cash flow, uh-huh. another $2,950 from a Stafford loan, another $2,100 from a tax refund, mm-hmm. and then we're talking about the students making $1,200. $1,200, and then using their $1,200 that they made over the summer to help pay for college. Yes. So if you're talking about $17,000 being the average price of a public university, that's pretty close to your $17,000. I mean, there's a little bit of a gap there. Sure. And and the whole thing I tell a lot of individual parents in, in the clinics that I give, and this is a, one of the first questions I ask a lot of parents, how many of you all can save $3,650 a year? I may get one or two hands go up in the air. But when I come back and make a statement, how many of you all can save a minimum of $10 a day or work the first 10 to 15 minutes out of your working day to help pay for your kid's education. I get 90 to 95% of the hands go up, but I asked exactly the same question. Mm. It's how individuals perceive whether or not they can afford something whenever you put it into large figures, such as the 17000 If you take it and put it into lower figures and start looking at what you are paying already and utilizing the assets, as well as the income that you have generated coming in, all of a sudden there is no borrowing that is going to be needed by the parent. The student may have to come in and borrow a small amount, but not at the rate of what the college board basically is saying now that the average student graduating or getting an undergraduate degree is coming out of college with over $23,000 in debt. It can be much, much lower. That can be cut in half by only looking at how you're spending your money what you have to work with, and then look at areas that you can basically adjust without, and I'm going to emphasize this, without changing your lifestyle. So certainly, if you're already spending $7,000 to 
basically house and feed and clothe your child. That's money that's very easily for most parents to understand that is transferable. Yes. They know that they your tax refund, which is one of the monies that a lot of parents think of that as free money. You know, it's been a loan to the government, but now it's mine and I can use it in any way that I want. But we're talking about working a little bit smarter and then using that money to help pay for college. Exactly. In addition, your idea of, I love your idea of, you know, if you ask parents if they can save $3,000, most parents are just like, no, I can't. But if you can ask them, can you save $10 a day, which is basically the same thing, they can do that. So it's about adjusting your priorities and perhaps reframing the conversation such that parents are able to see how they can do it as opposed to just being stuck on that big number, $17,000, or for private schools, more than $17,000. Well, here's one thing with private colleges and universities other than your Ivy League schools. Okay. Every one of them, the private universities out there have to compete for seats or have to compete for students in relationship to individual students going to a public college. According to the College Board, 80 to 85% of the students are going to a public-supported university. Okay. So therefore, right around, what, 15% is going to a private. So therefore, for the individual private colleges and universities to compete on a cost standpoint with the public universities, every student that goes to a private university other than the Ivy League schools, they're going to discount that cost of a college education in what I call funny money. They call them scholarships. Okay. However, it is not real money. It is just giving the student a discount, just like if you were to go down and buy an automobile, you're not going to pay the sticker price. They're going to give you a discount. That's what I call car scholarships. Okay. <laughs> okay? So that'll put that in reality. They're going to bring that cost of that private college education down fairly close to what it would have cost the parents to attend a public college or university. So if the school costs, call it $30,000, mm-hmm. you may find that they give you a discount that would bring the cost from $30,000 down to about seventeen. Somewhere they, on the average, if it's thirty. Uh, we've got a college here in, in Kentucky that is right at thirty, thirty-two thousand. The average scholarship that is given to any student that is admitted into their university, they're averaging twelve thousand dollars. Twelve thousand dollars. Wow. So therefore, you've got thirty minus the twelve. You're down to eighteen thousand dollars, which is comparable to the most costly uh, public university here in Kentucky, which is the University of Kentucky, which has a sticker price of 17 Okay. So, therefore, you've got to look at it on a realistic standpoint of knowing what you can do with what you have. People will get into the habit, and that's where I get back to the habit issue. When you get into the habit of spending things or getting the habit of doing things, habits are extremely hard to uh, break. But a lot of people will say, well, then you're telling me I'm going to have to go on a budget. Well, I don't believe in budgets. Now, that's going to surprise a lot of the the people that are listening to this. Budgets, to me, are totally and completely against all human nature. Budgets basically take away things that you enjoy spending your money on or things that you enjoy doing. 
Whenever you do that, normally, in the majority of the situation, the individual is going to rebel. You know, it's kind of like going on a diet. You yeah. know, it's just like if they tell you that you can, you know, my whole thing is I love red licorice. So uh-huh. if they told me I had to never, ever, ever eat red licorice again, I could do it for a period of time. But at some point, I'm going to rebel and buy that little bag of red licorice. Right. So it's now, the same thing if, for a budget. Yes. If I were to come back into you and say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to eat any red licorice, liquid, uh, licorice for 30 days. <laughs> okay. Okay? But the next month, you eat all you want. Yes. So you, people can adapt over a 30-day period of time. So, therefore, that is what I call cash flow planning is that you don't cut out what you want to enjoy over a long period of time. You do it in 30-day increments. For example, if an individual here that were to go out and play golf, let's say, every weekend out of the month during the summer months, and they rent a golf cart like I do, well, out of that month that you play golf four times a week, only twice out of that month you rent a cart, the other two times you walk. And anyone that plays golf knows how expensive it is to go ahead and rent a golf cart. You take that savings, you put it back for the things that you want to take care of. But you only do that for 30 days. Next month, you come back in and you adjust someplace else. If a family is spending $800 a month on groceries, for one month and one month only, would your family eat any less for $700 or would they go into a dietary you know, coma? Right. So, therefore, there's $100 right now, right that month. The next month, spend your $800. So, you're not taking away things that people enjoy purchasing. You just alter it over a 30-day period of time. Okay. And by the time you start adding all these things up, it adds up to several thousands of dollars. And it's just like with a lot of individuals that normally people today will get a 2 or 3% raise of their income. And I ask a lot of people, I said, why, why don't we come in and take your raise to be used to cover the cost of a college education to keep your debt down so you don't have to borrow? Well, they're not used to spending this money now because they haven't seen it go into their checking account. So, therefore, they haven't seen it yet. And a lot of people will say, well, Chuck, I need that money to go ahead and, and maintain my standard of living in the consumer price index and all this stuff, and the one example that I give, I would say, okay, I'm your boss. You come in and you talk to me. So you come in and I come in and I say, Felicia, listen, this year has really been tight. We're not going to be able to go ahead and give out any raises this year. We'll try to make it up down the road here. Now, I will then ask you, if that were to occur, would you lose your home? No. Would you not be able to pay your utility bills? No. Your car payment. No. It's like that. You wouldn't. But whenever they get the raise, all of a sudden that goes into their cash flow to where they start buying things that they normally wouldn't have bought before they got the raise to begin with. So it's really about making choices. Mm-hmm. And you're not talking about making drastic choices or choices that they can't live with because you're really asking them to make a choice of spending less in, not necessarily this is one thing that you're going to pay less in, but it's just like we just need to be paying less from month to month, and you get to choose which category you're going to cut for this month in order to make it happen. You're exactly right, and, and you don't have to be a mathematician here or an Einstein to figure that out. All you have to do is take control of your finances. 
It's just like if you were to go to work. You have your job duties that your boss expects you to do and a certain things that you have to do to make sure that the company makes a profit. You're responsible for your department or you're responsible for your job to make a good product or whatever so the company can stay in existence so you could keep a job. Now, you have two jobs, one that you work from 9 to 5 or whatever, and then you have your second job over here, and your second job is your family. If you were evaluated, the majority of the individuals out there that were evaluated on their duties at home, like they're evaluated on the job that they work from 9 to 5, they would be fired within 60 days for non <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine that that would be true for a lot of people. So there's where the dilemma is. Number one, they don't know how they're spending their money. Their money is controlling them. They don't understand how they're being taxed. They just basically have it taken right out of their paycheck. They don't know the benefits of things that they can do without, once again, without changing their lifestyle. That is the key. And in getting away from unproductive habits, it's like if I were to give my granddaughter a sucker and let her suck on it for five or ten minutes, and then all of a sudden I turn around and I take it away from her. She's going to scream bloody murder because she got in the habit of basically sucking on that sucker, and she liked it. Well, that is what I'm talking about when it comes to changing your lifestyle. I like things, and I know you do too. I like to buy nice things, and I like to go out, and I like to do things. But the thing is, whenever I start to take all of that away, now all of a sudden, things really start to change, and somewhere down the road in the majority of the situations, I don't want to say all, but in the majority of the situations, you're going to go right back to that same habit, and you're going to be spending more than what you did before you started to quit. So it's cash flow issues and cash flow management. I don't think most people think that when they're looking at a $17,000 bill that it's their cash flow that keeps them from being able to make that. But I'm telling you today, you really educated people about what they could do. I love your tips of taking a look at your cash flow, your tax refund, taking a look at saving $10 a day, looking at your assets and how you spend your money. I think that that is a blueprint for people to be able to really figure out and determine. And you said, say, 60 to 75% of the cost of their college education just by making those adjustments? That's correct. It's that simple. It is not difficult. But people today... They come in and they think they're in a hole, and they don't think about how they can get out of it. There are too many people today, like I said, that were spending too much time thinking about the financial problems and not enough time on how to solve the problem. And the majority of the individuals and families need to understand when they take some type of action, it will cause a reaction. This is just what I call the engineering uh, philosophy because you can't solve a problem unless you know what the problem is to begin with. When it comes to college educational issues, the problem is how am I going to pay the $17,000? That is your foundation. Then you start building up from there, looking at your taxes, looking at your income, looking at the usable assets that are non-productive and setting out a very simple game plan 
on knocking that $17,000 down and eliminating as much debt as possible. And it's that simple. It, it's the philosophy that my parents back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, that was their philosophy. They did not purchase anything unless they had the cash in the bank to buy it. Back then, there was no credit cards, and people had relatively low debt. So what I'm bringing to light is the philosophy and the ideas to individual parents that were being raised in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. All right, Chuck, thank you very much. Is there any other final thoughts that you want to leave us with today? The only thing that I would suggest to a lot of individuals out there is to take a proactive approach to the college. Make sure that when a student is looking at a college or university and looking at a cost issue, making sure that the cost is worth the benefit of the education for the kid. If the individual student is wanting to go to a private university that has a sticker price of thirty, forty, fifty thousand, and the student wants to get a degree in social sciences or whatever, look at the income that's going to be generated from that degree based off the cost that you're going to pay for that education. Is it worth the investment? So if you can get a job, to just kind of follow your logic, if the job is going to pay you, call it 35000 maybe $40,000, mm-hmm. but in, in order to complete your degree at a college that costs, call it $30,000, it's going to cost you $120,000 to pay for the college, $30,000 times four years, assuming that students really finish in four years, and we both right. know that that's not necessarily happening. But assuming that they did finish in four years, they're going to graduate with 120 somebody's going to graduate with $120,000 of debt if they don't follow the things that we've kind of laid down in this conversation and the student is only going to have income of call it $35,000 will have a hard time maintaining that debt once they graduate and there's where parents should take a course in what I call debt-to-income ratio, finding out was the education, the out-of-pocket expense that's going to be incurred in that situation, that would not be a good investment because they could accomplish exactly the same thing by attending a $17,000 private college education. Well, Chuck, I don't know about you, but one of the things I definitely find is there's something in parents' psyches that I sit down and talk to, and I know I sometimes have to really resist it with my kids, is the fact that they're looking at you, they're all bright and innocent, they're just like, but Mommy, I really, really, really want to go to this college. And it just makes your heart melt or, you know, make you feel like a bad parent if you have to say that that just doesn't make any sense from a debt-to-income to ratio. I mean, I don't think, you know, the average 17-year-old wouldn't understand what I'm talking about when I said debt-to-income ratio. Okay, you know, here's, here's a way around that, and this is what I do whenever I have this situation. To where an individual student is wanting to go to a private university, it's the college for me, Okay. okay. I sit down, and here's the, here's the homework I give the student. I show the student exactly what mom and dad has coming in on an income standpoint. I also show the individual students the debts and the financial obligations of, let's say, the utilities, the car payments, and all this other stuff that the parents are consuming. And in some situations, let's assume all of a sudden they have an additional two or $300 left over at the end of the month. Okay. okay. Then I turn around to the student and say, okay, here's what mom and dad can afford out of their cash flow right now. 
they can afford two, let's say, $300 a month. That's $3,600 a year. Okay. You're wanting to go to a $30,000 private college education. We're going to knock off here, let's say, 10000 in scholarships. That's going to leave you 20000 Mom and dad now can only afford three. You can go to that university as long as you can come up and show us where we're going to get the additional money. And then you shut up? Oh, yes. <laughs> and so they've got to figure out where the other $17,000 is going to have to come from. That's correct. Now, all of a sudden, you're educating the student on basic financial literacy. You need to get your student involved in it and show them what the real world is all about. And I have a class that I put on for individual high school students that are juniors and seniors or even some of them that are in college. And I show them what the real world is all about. And I show them the problems of basically borrowing in excess of what you can handle and showing their financial obligations. These individual students today that are in the middle-income families, they've got their iPods, they've got their cell phone, they've got their own TVs. A lot of them have their own car to drive. Their dad and mom are basically paying for their insurance. Anything that the kid needs that's within reason, they normally can get it but they don't see these other factors that are behind what is basically providing these students these benefits until all of a sudden they're out on their own. And all of a sudden they know nothing about how they're being taxed by the federal and state governments. They have no idea what in the world employment taxes are, which is Social Security. They do not know how to save money in the majority of the situations. They have no idea what a utility bill is, a gas bill, a water bill, or making a rent on their apartment. So therefore, financial literacy is not being taught in high school and definitely not being taught in college today. And that's the reason why we're having thousands and thousands and thousands of people out here running into financial difficulty, because they don't understand how money works. And that's what I try to instill in the college consulting that I do, as well as the classes that I put on, is to bring this to light and start educating the individuals on mom and pop issues. Because for most families, the parents never really tell the kids what's going on with their finances. Oh, no. A lot of them say, no, we do not want our son or daughter to see what we make. They hold that very close to their chest. Well, I think it's an important thing, and especially since one of the situations that I came across is the fact that there was a a woman in a class that I was teaching, and I was talking about um, when paying for college, it's a partnership between the colleges, the parents, and the students. And the parents have the roles, the students have the roles, and, of course, the colleges have the roles. And I was talking about, you know, from the parents' standpoint, it's important to you that you have a conversation with your kids about what you can afford and what you cannot afford. Because in this particular case, the student had done all the things that she was supposed to do. She got good, good grades. She got admitted to school. She, she was ready to go. And she sits down with her parents, and she's like, okay, I'm ready to go to college now. I just need you to write this check. And they looked at her, and they're just like, we never saved a dime for college. You've got to figure out how you're going to do this on your own. And it was a big surprise for her because she had already been admitted to colleges, and she's expecting that her parents are going to be able to pay for the colleges, but they really hadn't um, prepared themselves. So it is exactly what you're talking about. It's a partnership, and it's important that the parents talk to the students and the students talk to the parents about this decision called college so that it works for everybody because the other thing that often gets 
gets neglected in this whole equation is the fact that there may be children after the first child that need to be educated. And this needs to work not only for the first child, but it also needs to work for the other children after it. You can't bankrupt mom and dad on the first child so that the other children have less choices in terms of the colleges that they're looking at and can consider. Well, and another thing the individual students need to realize as well, because I know a lot of individuals up in the Northeast in particular, they're sending their kids to a private university feeling like that this name brand college will give the individual a better education and the individual student will come out and have a better opportunity for employment based off the school that they graduate from. Well, if these individual parents feel that way, go and have them talk to their boss and ask them how important is the degree from a university for a uh, name brand university, how much is that of importance to you as an employer? They don't care as long as you've got a degree. It could be from Wabash State University. It doesn't make any difference. The name of the college will not get you quicker employment. It may give you more contacts with individuals that are in your field of study, but then again, if you have a field of study that is basically paying thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a year, what difference does it make? Because you're only going to get paid for what the market is going to bear for that degree program. So they're not going to pay extra because you graduated no, from... because you graduated from Cornell. Right. If the job is only paying thirty-five, dollars $40,000, or even if it's paying... $60,000. It's only paying that. Oh, basically what it, the starting because, income is. Because that, yes, that, because that's the starting income. It's not because you graduated from Cornell. It's not like Cornell, in your example, is going to be paid more than the local state university because what they're paying for is the position, not the name of the college that you graduated from. That, that is correct. Now, I'm going to reverse that, and if you get into a specialized field, and let's assume you go for your master's or your doctorate, now it becomes a major factor of where you get your graduate degree from. Used to, a high school education was all that is required. Then they upped it to college. Now today, individuals that are wanting to make an above-average income must have an advanced degree above college in a lot of the situations depending on what they're getting their degree on. But these students are looking at a degree program without looking in to see whether or not this particular employment after graduation is going to pay them enough to live the type of lifestyle that they have been used to growing up under mom and dad's roof. Right. And they don't think of that. Okay. So it's a lot more than just filling out the free application for federal student aid or the CSS profile. It is a financial investment. And the scenario that I give to this with a lot of parents is that if you need a car, you have a choice. You can go out and buy a Mercedes-Benz for $50,000. Or you can go out here and you can buy a Chevrolet for $17,000. Both vehicles will get you from point A to point B. So if that is your intent, why pay 50000 when you can get it for seventeen? Because the newness, I had a real good friend, matter of fact, he bought a Corvette. And everybody was just so impressed because he's got this brand new red Corvette that he paid $65,000, $70,000 for. Well, everybody was impressed for about two or three weeks. And then all of a sudden, the newness wore off. 
Yeah. We weren't that impressed anymore. But yet now he has a substantial amount of car payments to make, and no one now are impressed anymore. So it's just common sense. If people would just use their head and understand and figure it out, starting from the basics of understanding what the problem is and what are we trying to accomplish here. And it's about education. Education. Paying for your education in a way that supports the family. That's correct. And the education that the individual student will receive at the colleges and universities is important. However, what is more important during this process is the education that the parents need to go through as well as the student needs to go through on educating themselves on educational financial literacy issues. Nothing today is free. No, nothing in life is free. So, Chuck, I just really wanted to say thank you. I thank you very much for sharing your information, your knowledge with the listeners today. I'm sure they got really good value out of you being here, and I very, very much appreciated you spending some time with us. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Felicia. Thank you very much for your time today, Chuck. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the College Experts Talk podcast. We hope you will join us again for our next podcast where we will continue to legally share college insider information with parents and students from the insiders themselves. For more information and to instantly download your free copy of the College Funding Resources Report titled Five Strategies That Parents Need to Start Using Today to Cut Their College Costs Tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Mike Elmore for the College Experts Talk Podcast.